uh, open the discussion up to the audience. So with uh, all questions can I have first. Thank you very much to all the presenters. Um, we've had a lot of different scenarios and experiments here about very specific kinds of populations in very specific places, and yet there's a lot of, at the same time, generalization about what people do and what people think. Um, I was interested in, because I've got a lot of Japan and other countries, I was interested in how much these results from these very specific populations, largely I can see in Western universities, might actually compare to different populations in other countries. Specifically, where there are different cultural ideas about what truth and lying are, and how and the cultural values of those things. Particularly in Japan, where lying is not regarded with the same moral opprobrium as it is in the West. It's a fact that an integral part of social interaction and quite accepted as such. Anyway. Yeah, I think that's finally a critical point. Well, you know, lies are very much a social lubricant, but when does it turn into the social grease fire is where you sort of try to find that. And But, but that's where I think a lot of the stuff in the, the security world is, is dealing with stuff that's really quite clear and quite stark about that. You know, so the cultures may not feel guilt or certain emotions about lying, but everybody fears a kick in the butt, um, I think, and including the Japanese. And so I, I think when you get to those types of situations, the day-to-day the -day social norms of lying then convert into something that, that, that may be more generalizable. I don't know, but hopefully the other folks here see what they think. I think the question relates to the, the importance of doing theory-based deception research. Because if you know why people lie, and, and, and what's happening when they lie, you can then predict whether it's happening in different cultures. So things that we do, we make the interview setting more difficult. That affects lies more than two times. It should be evident. It's a fine, the, the fines we have so far need all cultures exactly the same, but it's... I have from a few studies earlier about the cultural differences and what leads interviews and deception. And I found in all those studies that um, people South Asian people respond differently to different types of interviewing techniques than British people do, so it's just in South Asians versus British people. Um, but it didn't affect lying and the cues to deception that much. So Although there are findings of general differences in behavior between um, Asian people and South Asian people and British people, it didn't change the cues to deceit. So there were not culture-specific cues to deception as far as we have found. And we wrote a book chapter about it in a new deception book that's coming out this year. Oh, our book, yeah, good book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Comes out very soon. Grand Hack 5 is free. Buy the book. He's always said you'll send me the chapter. She can't not allow to. A question for Mark. Um, so, you said in your Nathan's four layers, you have several layers of defense. And you said it's perfectly it's okay. None of these layers has to be perfect. So that's actually very similar to the safety model, um, the human error model by James Wiesen, for instance. But, but, but what he points out is none of them is perfect. So the, the imperfections are like holes in, in slices of Swiss cheese. And you get an incident when uh, a threat manages, when basically the holes line up. So given that you were talking about the scientific approach, I was wondering, do you have a view on uh, number one, scientifically, how can we work out whether it's possible, and do we have any scientific methods for working out 
that it's not possible for the holes to ever align in the defenses. Because I think the second question is, if uh, how do you know that you don't get uh, other holes opening up? So basically, if there's non-compliance or, or incompetence, uh, you get news with new holes. So for instance, when they switched from, um, when they basically put the emphasis on scanning for liquids in airports, the detection rate of sharps dropped by 80%. So basically we're getting 60% more sharp objects onto planes now than we did before. So do you have a view on how we slide to get the good ones? It's a complicated issue in a number of ways as you've identified it, but a lot of it goes beyond the science into the practical um, uh, deployment of these things because you have to now train people to do this. And one of the things that government people like to do is very top down, and what that does is it sort of freezes people into doing things. And unfortunately, it often puts incentives into the place where it's better to your career to let a bomb through than it is to actually break that protocol. Um, and so what you're seeing, too, the nature of the threat, the nature of the threat is dynamic because it's a human being. And so the defense has to be dynamic. So if, if you stay, put all your security and lock it up, yeah, then the holes may be found. But if things are moving, if there is a hole, it may only be temporary, right? So that's another thing. You throw the time element into it. So di a dynamic defense and a dynamic, you know, versus the only thing that would be ultimately effective against a dynamic threat. Um, that and at this point, a human being is a pretty, if you allow them, um, to, to use some of their skills and to develop other techniques that can help them along the way um, may provide this. And so that little sort of element of chaos makes it so that if there is the whole, if it is there, it's not there for long. And, and so that somebody doesn't find it at the right time. So random plus is always better than trying intelligence. And it's like even with secondary screening, you know, you always have to have a random stops in there. So no matter how some particular individual, if they have some sort of malintent, um, has plans and everything they know, they still stand a chance, no matter how well they do. And so, you know, th that's it. But, that, but that's the thing, is how do you get that science and put it in the operational way so that the frontline people can manage it without just turning them into sort of uh, blind zombies? So there's this underlying, uh, Mark and Frank, particularly Frank with your experimental design, a uh, thing going on here about compliance versus ethical behavior. I mean, Mark, you seem to have this odd assumption that the TSA people are actually compliant, and if you give them degrees of freedom, they'll do something that doesn't resemble pointless authoritarian bullying. <laughs> and, um, and Frank, your subjects in a position where they have to choose, in some extent, between compliance with the experiment you design and ethical behavior. And generally, humans don't have a good record in either of those cases, like avoiding, you know, pointless formal bullying or doing the ethical thing in the face of authority. Well, too, there's assumption that they're all the same to TSA people, too. So back to you, teacher. There's, there's other assumptions. Uh, yeah, but I'm not asserting this in my research. I'm talking about testing. I think this is primarily for Sophie. Um, I'm fascinated by the correlation between the perception of unfair treatment and the willingness to lie or cheat. And I was wondering, uh, it's, it's relevant in my work in military ethics uh, to talk about 
a feeling of reciprocity having been broken and um, basically an idea of forfeiture. It's actually a pernicious thread that we have to deal with. But I'm wondering, did you have any sense or did you get any um, evidence back on whether people were consciously rationalizing that way, saying basically that, that um, I can do this because they have treated me unfairly, it is a violation, there's a forfeiture that's occurred here, or were they less conscious than that? So in the study I've just presented, there wasn't really a room for interaction or writing down how they felt, but we did a follow-up study on an insurance claim, sorry, and sort of randomly accepted claims, fairly rejected them or unfairly rejected them, and then they could sort of go in how they felt and why they thought that their claim uh, should be accepted rather than rejected. And that's, we have a long list of how people rationalize what they're saying. And I categorized all these responses into two categories. And one was, so the perceptions of fairness are saying um, that I really took good care of my bag. I didn't let it out of sight. And so I, I think it should be accepted. Like, it's, it's, it's not my fault. It, it was just a really good thing. It's, it's not negligence. It's them trying really hard. And then there was the other part of the proper falsifying information. So some of them used the emotional approach, saying <coughs> it's not my fault, and others just sort of came up with new details that they, yeah, that they, so they were trying to rationalize it, saying um, it didn't happen. So they were creating some false information. So we had the emotional response, and we had the changing what happens response. Um, and those who covered most, most of the cheating. Creating like a false narrative for the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, just changed what happened. Fascinating, yeah. thank you. Okay. It's a question for Mark, and it's sort of a question in passing about something you said, but I was curious, on one of your slides, you had a sidebar that I think it was a GAO study that said yeah. the TSA agents were between nine and some other percentage. Right. More like, I'm trying to figure out how they got that data, because is that, that can't be in the field. Yes, it is. I mean, what, what is the probability that in one year a TSA agent will actually find somebody with malicious intent as opposed to somebody with skill? Well, no, not necessarily malicious intent, but in this case it was criminal intent. So the, the criteria <clears throat> that they used in the study is they had the trained officers doing their job, talking to people, so on and so forth. And they quantified how often did they identify somebody that ended up involving a, uh, a law enforcement officer intervention, meaning that they got arrested. So it was a false document. They were smuggling drugs, there was something like that. Uh, and they compare that to random stops. And so the, the data set on that was over 15,000 observations. So that's why you have such giant odds ratios on that. And so they said, depending on how you classify that, it could be they were, these trained officers were four times more likely to get something with contraband than random stopping people, or up to 52 times more likely. So, but that's how they did it, it was in airports. I mean, the reason that 52 number struck me was it didn't occur to me that were actually that many criminal intents that you could <laughs> Oh, yeah, and all the time in the airports. Really? Okay. It's not related to the airports. Pardon me? It's not related to the airport. It's just about Well, this, this was one of the issues, to, to be fair about it, that some critics certainly raised about it because this was sort of criminal but not terrorist sort of behavior. Well, that's but okay. Nonetheless, it's still it's serious stuff when people go to the pokey for that, so. Okay. I mean, because we need that report, interesting, it's, it's compared to random stops. And what are random stops? But it includes pensioners, do all the kind of things. That, of course, are never selected by the guys doing this kind of stuff. If you do a matched sample, the effect will disappear. At least I found it in the UK. 
So the random stops, of course, and the, the, the spot things are better than random stops. And random stops include people they never ever approached. If you just do, do some kind of profiling first, then you can see the stops that have been far, far less. So this is all how to, how to define your, your, your control group. Uh, Sophie, yeah, the, uh, the definition of unfair treatment, of course, is one of those things that uh, is very culturally dependent, as we see in the with that's the, only, the weirdest country in the world, um, where you get the uh, games approach to decide what people think is fair and unfair. How much do you think um, that would validate or invalidate your results in, in other cultures? In other cultures. Um, I think the money aspect in our study definitely uh, will be different between cultures. Uh, the benefit of using Enter is that we could actually try, uh, because at the moment we have been testing Americans. Um, but yeah, it's, it's possible to repeat this study, uh, translate it into whatever language, and do it again in different uh, cultures. So that is uh, a way we can take this forward. And I've been reading the book you gave me last time I saw you about how fairness is defined and that there's sort of the objective fairness and the personal fairness. I presume that difference between people and between cultures. Um, so it's a, it's a good question and it's in line with the other cultural questions. Um, and, and yeah, um, if we can get participant money, this is something we can do quite easily. So. Uh, Hi, uh, another question for Sophie. Uh, I'm David, by the way. Pleased to meet you, Sophie. Uh, first, a, a clarification. It wasn't clear to me, perhaps I wasn't listening closely enough, uh, whether the, the experimental subjects who were treated unfairly were aware that they were being treated unfairly. Yeah. Um, so I received some emails from answer participants some saying, wow, I just thought I missed clicks, and a few people saying, because it was the first option they had to click, it was not a choice, A, B, C, B, and in this case, um, I chose uh, noun A as uh, the last answer. And I had someone say, if you would have chosen B or C, I could have imagined misclicking, but because it was the top one, I sort of could imagine me clicking the top one. So therefore, some people were a bit suspicious, or if they actually clicked the wrong button, or if this was um, manipulated. And um, so, both. Okay, so, um, I, I think there's an issue. Uh, so, what? what What's, what's being presented here, and which seems, what seems to be the case, is there's some kind of causal relationship between how these folks were treated and, and their disposition to lie. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously, if that's the case, it's obviously got to be mediated by something psychological. That it's, it's, from what you said, it's not clear whether what mediated that was was the belief that they had been treated unfairly. But even if they realized, or some people realized that this was probably or part of the experiment or a mistake by the website, I got that response mm -hmm. as well, thinking maybe the website was wrong. That happens a lot, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's also responses as well. Um, so, regardless of if it was small intent by the researcher or a mistake by the website, or they thought they made the mistake, they can still feel that it was unfair. So, even like regardless of if it was 
accidental or on purpose. It can still feel that. So when I looked at the, um, how they felt, the frustration levels went up from one point okay. something up to five. Okay. So okay. it might be frustration. No, I, no, I, 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 I follow that, but I think there's a larger point here. So we can say minimally that there's something about the experience that they had mm -hmm. that resulted in this effect. Now, certainly one interpretation is the feeling that it's unfair. Yeah. But it might also be the sense, say, of being rejected. Treated, treated disrespectfully, yeah. rejected, being stupid, yeah. um, being frustrated. Being, so I, I think to pursue the research. That, I, I thought I fully agree. So when I was making this talk, I actually tried to put in the next study as well, the insurance one yeah. I mentioned previously. And because the question in between those two studies was, is this actual fairness or is this just in general being rejected or feeling pissed off or yeah. is there something else happening? Yes. So to answer that question, we did another study yes. um, where we um, or accepted claims or um, rejected them fairly or unfairly. So we had two types of rejections mm -hmm. uh, based on sort of following the, the insurance yeah. policy guidelines. It was the first rule was yeah. violated by the the fair rejection, or there was no rule violated, but it was just a general, you didn't take well yeah. enough care of your possessions, which is a very broad concept and can only be yes. sort of differently interpreted. So we had this difference between fair and unfair rejection, and what we found is that although the mood questionnaires were very similar for the two types of rejection, so they still felt frustrated, they still felt unhappy and anxious, and yeah. um, cheating differed massively. So we saw that um, in the both rejection condition, people cheated more than in the accepting condition, but in the unfair rejection condition, they cheated much more than in the fair rejection. So the fairness, I think, did have it. Just one more comment, yeah. and I'll cease monopolizing. There's a deeper issue, though, that okay. if you're rejected unfairly, you're also, say, demeaned. Okay. So yeah. what, what you need to do is try and pull those things apart. Is it specifically unfair treatment, or is it anything which might be demeaning that produces this technology? Yeah, yeah. just take, take that offline. Uh, just one final question. Um, yes, I have a very similar remark uh, to this talk. I think. Um, there's one thing is fairness, the other thing is, is I think what, what you were looking at is reciprocity more. And when we look at how people negatively reciprocate how they were treated before, it really matters whether that treatment was intentional or not intentional. Mm -hmm. So you can have unfair outcomes, uh, but unintentionally, and you can yeah. have unfair I think that was your point. Really. Yeah, and I think distinguishing so that, is, um, uh, that was my quick remark. I have another question for Jesse, if I, Jesse, if I may. Yeah. Um, you were uh, calling bluffing. Uh, I was wondering whether it is closely related to risk taking. There were studies which show that if you show men uh, nice women and the fast cars, they, they are willing to take more risk. So, might that have been driving some of the results? <laughs> and my other question was whether the outcomes for those who were willing to take higher risk and bluffing were changed. Yeah, and whether those were bluffing more, more as a result of having more female avatars um, in their game were getting more money as a result or whether they were losing out. So were they successful with that behavior? 
uh, the success of the block was not assessed. Uh, I'll answer in the second part. So we just wanted to know all the basically the pot sizes. So uh, in each task, the pot size for that which is already on the table to sort of help, help constant. So they, they, they decided to block because the, the, the size of the block is always contingent, or the decision to block is always, always contingent on the size of the part that is already up there. We didn't give the final outcome because it's, um, it, it's actually sort of hard because these are big tissues of the components. And so you, um, the mathematical expected value of a block is very hard to assess. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm uh, completely understood the question, actually, if this didn't, didn't answer it. Uh, no, I didn't know that these other players were computers. That's it. All right, OK. So so these, these, were, these, were, these were just a big technical problems. And the first question, well, sure. I mean, it's a game of risk-taking. Uh, bluffing uh, entails, entails risk. Uh, so, so this is... Uh, I, I, I wouldn't uh, it, it, whether to say. I mean, of course, when you when you bluff, you take a risk. So, in a, in a sense, in a sense, I agree with you. But but I, 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 I'm all, still saying that it's still a deception. I mean, you're 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 making making a choice to take a risk to deceive. And I, I'm not necessarily. I have to apologize. I think I'm not quite sure again about, about what you mean by the question. Yeah, maybe it's different concepts being like a and being respected. Yeah, they might be very, very closely associated. Let's, let's bring this session to a close and uh, in about half hour break where we can continue over the topic.